This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. To me, the University of Missouri is my academic home. For today's conversation with Professor Rabia Gregory, I headed back to the stellar University of Missouri Religious Studies Department to discuss some of the history of Christianity, the importance of studying the humanities and religion, and her book, Marrying Jesus in Medieval and Early Modern Northern Europe, released in 2016. Today's topic is about an experiential learning course at the University of Missouri called Monastic Worlds, where students learn hands-on techniques, ethnography, bookbinding, and live by a monastic calendar in a Benedictine monastery in the American Midwest. We also dive into medieval and early modern Christianity and Dr. Gregory's own research. Professor Rabia Gregory's primary research interest is the history of Christianity in medieval and early modern Europe. She approaches the study of religion through book history, material culture, and theories of gender. Her book, Marrying Jesus in Medieval and Early Modern Northern Europe, Popular Culture and Religious Reform, published by Ashgate, uses previously unpublished cultural artifacts to revise long-standing assumptions about religion, gender, and popular culture. In the book, she demonstrates that by the 14th century, worldly, sexually active brides of Christ, both male and female, were no longer aberrations and provide a history of the dispersion of theology about the bride of Christ in the period between the 12th and 17th centuries and explains how this metaphor, initially devised for a religious elite, became integral to the laity's pursuit of salvation. I'm reading the book right now, and the snapshot of life in medieval and early modern Christianity is quite fascinating. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Professor Rabia Gregory from the University of Missouri Religious Studies Department. Welcome to Classical Ideas. I'm here today with... Professor Rabia Gregory from the University of Missouri Religious Studies Department. Dr. Gregory, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk with you. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself and talk a little bit about some of your work just so the audience can get a sense of who you are as a scholar? Um, so I am our department's historian of Christianity officially, which goes back to the idea that each of us in the department is an expert on at least one thing and teaches a couple of other things too. I also work on and teach classes on gender and religion. And um, my own area of academic training was medieval and early modern Christianity. And I currently am working on a number of projects related to that. I've also dabbled in other things. I do a lot of work on religion and popular culture. I've published a bit on religion and video games. I am also working with some of our graduate student researchers on a new project that is looking at issues of teaching and religious diversity in Missouri and our role as part of the land-grant university. So I'm doing a number of different things. What do you enjoy about the job? That's a huge question. I think for me, the most exciting part about being able to do this work is the opportunity to pursue my curiosities. 
to take what I find interesting and that no one else has thought about or looked at for four or five, six, seven hundred years and tell people this exists, this is important, this is why you should care about it. That's definitely the part I enjoy most is that. But then also the teaching. Each time I'm in the classroom and get an opportunity to meet new students and work with them and learn from them and hear a little bit more about their lives and their experiences, I think that's a huge gift. I agree so much as a religious studies teacher in a high school. I see the same kinds of light bulbs go on and I also find it to be such an awesome medium for me to like travel down the rabbit hole of curiosity and just say oh I'm just gonna spend the next two weeks of my summer vacation just reading as much of the Mahabharata as I can shove into my brain I'm I've got to say that sounds like a great way to spend the summer I really I am so delighted that you're doing this in the high school level I think one of my big hopes for the next 10 20 years in the U.S. is that there'll be much more religious studies education at the pre-college level, I'm really optimistic that we might be able to start getting that to be a standard part of the curriculum. It makes such a difference for people to have that opportunity to learn about religion from a secular perspective and learn about religious traditions that aren't their own. So before we dive into your work and your scholarship, uh, I want to talk a little bit about teaching methods with you because um, I've heard a lot about your particular classes, and I want to talk to you uh, teacher to teacher and kind of nerd out for a second. So I, I've heard that you're kind of known for experiential teaching methods, like you'd like to put people into situations where they can actually have a hands-on experience as opposed to just a book experience or a lecture experience. So what courses do you teach and what kinds of learning experiences do you try to provide for the students in your classes? Um, hmm. I'll think of, let me think for a second. So I think the best way to ex- answer your question is to talk about how I've changed my teaching practices. Oh, that's great. I love that. Because you describe me as somebody who teaches through experiential learning, but that's something I've come to in response to working with students over the years. And I certainly, when I started out in teaching, following my mentors, was much more of a text-oriented, you will sit and memorize these things and pass a midterm kind of teacher. But over the years, I've seen two things that perhaps you've seen as well. One is that students have increasing amounts of anxiety about testing, and that perhaps somebody who really knows the material doesn't necessarily fully perform to the best of their abilities in a formal test environment. And I started thinking hard about ways that I could accommodate this new kind of anxiety in my classrooms without in any way changing the learning experience. And so early on, I started adding creative options to a lot of my projects. Um, And actually, one of them is right behind you. That was, look down, that quilt right behind you on the chair. There is a quilt. Oh, brilliant. That was part of a project done by a MFA student who's graduated now who was, she signed it, um, working on issues pertaining to gender and quilting and religion. And as part of her work, talked with the students about quilting techniques, and each student in the class made a square, and she made the quilt and kindly gave it to me. Incredible. And it's in my office now, right? And so... And it's so comfortable. Yeah. So, and if for those of you who can't see this, it is a quilt in which... Um, it says on it, Women, Religion, and Culture, Fall 2012 Class Project. The artist has signed it. And then all of the squares, each student learned how to tie a knot. And we did a thing called shibori dyeing, which is kind of the origin of tie-dye, which is a technique that was pioneered by Japanese women. And we had to learn how to tie slip knots. Many of us didn't know how. Shirley taught us. 
Each of us made a square. We signed a square. We tied our own knots. She went and took it into a vat of dye and dyed them and sewed it together. And in theory, was going to teach me how to hang it, but I never got around to it. <laughs> so I think that's a an illustration of the kinds of things where a student and I work together and realize that really hands-on is a better way to learn. Um, so, for instance, in my introductory survey course on the history of Christianity now, we do a number of experiential projects that have the same learning outcomes as the traditional sit and pass a test, but are, I hope, less stressful and also more more joyful and I think often have a longer sort of retention. So, for instance, one thing that we do in that class is, this is something that started as a small assignment but has been built up, is to write about sacred spaces. and. We do a couple of lectures on church architecture and landscape and then um, take the time and I have them check out cameras from the library if they want to go and document a space that they consider to be sacred, explaining how it ties into things we've learned about lighting and windows and buttresses. And they do amazing work. And every time I learn something, whether they go and photograph a church in their hometown or a shopping mall or anything. I kind of feel like I want to do that in class tomorrow morning. It's remarkable how well it works. You may have to tell me how to do it in a miniaturized version that I could do in like a couple of days. Yeah, so cool. We can talk about it. it. But it's simple things like that. And even for instance, when I used to take my students to a museum or a library for a class visit, and I'm sure you do this with your students too. When I was a student, I would go and I would look and I would walk around and they'd talk at me. And I was kind of bored. My eyes would glaze over. Well, that's not how scholars work with these things. If you're writing about history or you're writing about art, you go and you spend time and you learn about it and you touch it and you smell it and you think about it. So I've been trying really hard to give them the tools that real scholars use and an opportunity to do that kind of humanities lab work in any class, no matter what class level. So that is an amazing opportunity to dive into something called monastic worlds, which is something that I really want to talk to you quite a bit about. And I'm reading a course description here, and I just pulled it off your shelf here in the office for any listener. It says, Monastic Worlds is an experiential learning course that introduces students to the religious history and culture of pre-modern Europe and the contemporary American Midwest. What is the elevator speech for what the course is and why people should take a course like Monastic Worlds? There are two answers for two different kinds of people. And I'll give you the one for the non-specialist first. Sure. Um, the one for the non-specialist is, haven't you ever wondered what the connections are between the place you're standing now here in Missouri, or I don't know where your listeners are, and the settlers who came, and the people you hear about in history books? Don't you want to know how they got here? Wouldn't it be amazing to go and see real living communities that still have medieval artifacts as part of their inheritance from their founders? That, you know, we're going to go and see relics, the largest relic collection in North America, which was weirdly enough, or interestingly enough, sent over as gratitude gifts after World War I um, from communities across Europe that were devastated by the war. And this one community in Missouri started raising money to help take care of and fundraise and look after these devastated cities and towns and it's gifts of gratitude they would send back their relics over 500 mailed across the atlantic in little envelopes carefully labeled with documents right and so i think part of it has to be this desire to know what the connections are between the place we are 
and this larger history of Western civilization. Um, also, it's just fascinating. And if you're interested in, for instance, small business issues, so a number of these religious communities run small businesses. They need to to stay functional and viable and have an economy or have enough money to operate their communities. Um, if you're interested in end-of-life care, one of them has one of the top-rated um, elder care facilities in the nation. If you're interested in what it's like to live with the same people for 50 or 60 years, eat with them every day, and pray with them every day, you know, those interpersonal relationships, it's fascinating. But the other answer, and I know I'm a lot longer than an elevator, if you're a specialist, if you're a scholar of religion, or you're a medieval historian, or you are interested in these things, the other answer is, this is one of the only ways in the U.S., without having to go to Europe or spend months in an archive, to really just get a hands-on techniques course. We work on ethnography, paleography, book history. Um, the first time we did it, we did bookbinding. We're going to learn calligraphy from Brother, or yeah, Marcotte, Michael Marcotte, who is the head of the artist school there and teaches calligraphy all the time. You know, we're going to actually learn how things were done, how they were made, what it's like to keep time in a different way instead of looking at your watch, going by the prayer bells. And I think that that sort of experiential element, but also just the access to sources that we don't necessarily think of being in Missouri and Kansas really is a wonderful opportunity. Do you make people leave their phones at home? We do not make people leave their phones at home. There are some issues with service access, particularly the week that we're at Conception Abbey, which is in Conception, Missouri, which is way past Kansas City, a little bit south of St. Joseph. Um, very remote location. I didn't have any cell signal. So what is Conception Abbey? Tell me a little bit about the place. So we're going to two different communities. One is Conception Abbey in Conception, Missouri, and the other is Mount St. Scholastica's in Atchison, Kansas, and they're very different communities. I know we'll talk about that a bit later. Um, Conception is a community that was founded by um, Benedictine monks coming from Switzerland. I hope I have that right. One of them came from Switzerland and one of them came from Austria. I might have reversed it. I don't have my notes in front of me. It's I okay. apologize. Um, Sorry but, for the very overly particular people listening. Yeah, I do apologize. I do usually know this, but I don't have it in front of me. Um, and Conception was founded in the 19th century. They got a like a library they had. They had um, their relics sent over. And they were involved in um, work to convert the local indigenous populations. And so some of their records are very much about their mission work and the schools they founded. They were also involved in pastoral care, providing preaching services for communities in the area, German-speaking communities. So a lot of their documents until about the 1920s are in German. And right down the road from Conception is a women's community, the Sisters of Perpetual Adoration in Clyde. About a mile away, you can run, you can walk, we drive, because it's pretty hot. Um, but they also have a number of interesting things with their community, including the Relic Collection. They also have the largest independent altar bread production company, and that's where they make the soap, which I should mention. They also have a, an artisanal soap manufacturing shop, which is fascinating, and we go and tour it. So what is the day-to-day -day life like for the monks in the Benedictine monastery today? I think the answer has to be it varies from community to community and what your role is. So, for instance, at Conception, they have a seminary, and a large part of the work of the community is teaching. 
a number of the monks in that community are on the faculty of the seminary. Not all of them, but some of them. And they do things like teach Western Civ and philosophy. That's part of what they do. They, I think the biggest defining characteristic of monastic life in modern Benedictine communities in the U.S. is the dedicated life of prayer. They, Each community, I've noticed, keeps different hours. They don't necessarily observe the full liturgy on all the hours that they would have in different centuries. But they'll pray multiple times a day. They come together. They sing. They spend their time reading and studying and that idea of contemplation that you end up spending a large part of your day just walking away from work the real work is not what we do for a living or our profession but instead the work of prayer i think defines that community communal life interesting so when you take how many students do you take first of all into these sorts of um places the number of students well we'll see who signs up Mm -hmm. i believe we're aiming for at least 10 and last year or two years ago when we did it we had nine i think we could we have a room block for up to 20 i would be delighted if we got 20 the goal is to have a group that is small enough for everybody to get to know each other and have fun but also large enough to be viable from the bureaucratic perspective of you need to have a certain number of students to have a class. Um, it's also worth noting that this class is a course share class, so students from UMKC also will be taking it. And anybody who wants to take it who isn't at the University of Missouri's Columbia or Kansas City campuses can also sign up as a non-degree seeking student through the University of Missouri. Cool. So what do you think? So t- picture, like, w- what age group? Do you have, like, all age groups of people take this? Actually, that's... a. I we've only taught it once, so I don't know that I can give you a complete definitive answer. But sure. the first time we taught it, we had an age range from probably about eighteen to fifty-five. Wow, that's that's much different than I was con- than I was uh, expecting. So take one of these ordinary people in this age range who get plunked down out of their lives into this Benedictine monastery. What do you think they find most interesting, like in that initial immersion? I don't know that everybody agreed. We did some surveys after the first time we taught it and got a lot of very rich and useful feedback. The two biggest themes that I remember from that, one of them was the shock of being out of their own world and in someone else's space on a different schedule. And I'm very aware of how much of a shock it was for all of us, myself included, to because the second day we were there everybody had to observe the monastic hours everybody they didn't have to participate but we did it as a good ethnographic practice at both communities to simply go to prayer every time it was called and that meant getting up at four in the morning which is hard or at least it was hard for me and neither of the communities do the middle of the night prayers so we didn't have to do that but simply just changing your schedule and changing your pace that was i think a big surprise not everybody knew beforehand that they would do it but what it does to us the idea that you just walk away from what you were doing and you have to go do this and be quiet for a while does it change their conception of time it certainly changed my conception of time it was the theme that emerged i'd say the other issue that became a recurring theme was the lack of privacy living in a 
study abroad environment, I don't think this is the same sort of situation. Just every meal was communal. We were at tables and we would talk with members of the community. We talked with each other. I don't mean lack of privacy. We had our own rooms, but just this sort of constant sense of being in someone else's home as a guest, but also as a student and a scholar observing was very much a shift from the way that we normally live in the world. So what are some of the kinds of like practical things that the um, college students in the course would do on like a day-to-day basis? What kind of skills did they pick up? Well, there are two elements of this class. There's a two-week online part where we have a lot of lectures and content in history. They learn the history of monasticism. They learn about how monastic chant shaped Western musical theory. They learn about Martin Luther as a monk in the Reformation. They learn about monasteries and the settling of early America. Right. And then when we get there on site, they are supposed to develop their own research project that they do around the communities. And so part of each day is set aside for their own research. Um, students worked on all sorts of things. They went and interviewed people. They worked on books and manuscripts in the collections. They Nobody did it. I hope somebody will someday. The community in Kansas has the most amazing mid-century stained glass windows. And we, they have all the documentation about commissioning it. And for somebody who's interested in mid-20th century art, it's a fantastic project that somebody could work on. So part of the day is spent on that. Part of the day, though, is spent going and doing site visits. We went and traveled around and interviewed people. Um, One day is set aside for the calligraphy. One day is set aside for rare books and learning how to look at manuscripts. We did a visit to Benedictine College down the road when we were in Atchison and spent some time in their library. They have amazing rare books there. So it's really high intensity. We do a lot of site visits. I'm not confident we'll make it work, but I'd like to go down to the Nelson Atkins and do a museum tour this year, working on setting that up. Cool. Um, what are your personal favorite um, moments the course offers? Like, like I know that the students probably have their own favorites, but what is your favorite? Maybe something it's you, something that you've done or something that you've made or a particular moment that really stands out in your mind as being like the the wow moment of the last class? I think for me, the wow moment was very much my own quirky interests, which was when we were in Atchison, we went to Benedictine College, and the chapel there is the most amazing mid-century building that a lot of people don't like that kind of thing. But there were two elements I thought were fascinating. One was that there was a depiction of a fresco behind the altar. And my students, my students were not excited about this. They had to deal with me walking around photographing this, but it had cowboy boots. There were cowboy boots incorporated into the sacred art, and it was amazing. And I was just so delighted. And to me, that was the best part of the whole visit, was the entire experience, was finding out there's a church in Kansas, and it's probably not the only church in Kansas, where this beautiful sacred space includes cowboy boots. It was delightful. Um, that's probably not the answer you were hoping for, but that's a very honest one. No, it's really great. It was I wasn't expecting it. Um, so like one of the things I always do whenever I my seniors are about to leave um, our year-long religious studies course that we have at, in my school that I teach at is I make them write about some of their most powerful moments or of the whole year. I ask them to answer a question along the lines of how are you different now than in August? And the responses are every year beautiful just 
amazing for me as the teacher to to read through at the end of the school year um, and really go off on a, on vacation on a really powerful note, like feeling like I actually accomplished something with a large group of people over a long period of time. So what are the students that took the class last time? What were they like when they came out at the other end? First, I love that that is an assignment you give your students. That's a great idea. It must be so heartening. Um it's been a while, so I'll paraphrase and try my best to remember. I think a couple of students described a transformation in themselves, not necessarily a spirit. Well, some of them did, and it was not intended, have some sort of spiritual experience while there. I suppose that happens. That wasn't what we were trying to do. But instead, a transformation in terms of their understanding of Catholicism, their understanding of monastic life. In certain cases, one student had been part of or had grown up in a faith community that had some views about Catholicism that were challenged at that visit. And, you know, we're very clear with the students, we're here to visit and observe. You don't have to participate in anything. We're not here to convert you. Um, But another outcome that I thought was really interesting and possibly very valuable was in a sort of appreciation and awareness of the labor of building community in this country prior to the industrial age from the amount of work and time that went into creating a book. And then what does it mean that these books survive to preserving documents, to um, farming, to we went out and looked at some of the fields that these communities still maintain, the hard work of carpentry and maintaining a community and the financial stuff, just sort of the intense appreciation for that labor, which they hadn't thought about before. Yeah, I certainly, listening to you just now, like, I can connect with not thinking about those things. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I understand exactly what you're what you're referring to, because I don't think about those things either. And I don't think most of the time when we're walking around, we are forced to think about who built the building we're in. Yeah. Where did this flat surface we're walking on come from? Who last planted and mowed the lawn? But in I think the other thing that came out of that was a sort of sense of appreciation for communal memory. Both communities are very much of the aura of the dead are still with us. They Mm -hmm. remember the names of the people who were in the community 20 years ago or a hundred years ago and talk about them and are still part of that communal culture in a way that I get the sense most of us don't really think about who was, you know, who had my office 20 years ago. I have no idea. Yeah. I could probably find out, but I don't, one of the communities, the community in Kansas, Mount St. Scholastica, they have a, a little box out by in the hallway where um, sisters draw a name and it's the name of a deceased sister and they can just walk by and pick one and then pray for her all day. You can go out and visit her graveyard, learn her stories. So a number of students went and picked a name and learned about that person. And the sort of idea that the dead are still part of the community, I think changed the way at least some people thought about their own relationships with their town, with their ancestors, with their friends and family. This has been a really fantastic little discussion about why people should take classes like this. Like I, I hear people say all the time, like, um, I'm not going to read that or I, I don't care. That was so long ago. But thinking about the individual lives of all who have come before us, who have gotten us to the point that we're at, I can't even really think of a more important reason to study history. Thanks. I think the other part of the pitch that I probably forgot to make earlier would be that this isn't just me teaching the class. It's a team. 
the lectures are from faculty at the University of Missouri and University of Kansas City, as well as University College London. Some of the best scholars in the country working on these topics, each one doing a guest lecture. So there's that, too. I mean, it's not just coming out and touring the monasteries. There's some really generous scholars who help put together some really groundbreaking units. Awesome. I kind of want to change gears a little bit. Okay. And I want to talk about some of your scholarly work as well. So um, forgive this uh, as I go on a ramble here for a second. So you're a specialist of Christianity in early modern and medieval Europe, correct? Okay. that would be correct. And one of the things that you said um, in your book that jumps out at me is um, that the medieval church is not the same entity as either the modern Catholic church or any single Protestant denominations. So my question is, what would modern Christians recognize if they were to be transported back to, say, the 5th, 9th, or 12th centuries? That is such a fun question to consider. I think that the bigger, the shorter answer is the one of what they would recognize and the longer answer is what they wouldn't. Yeah, that's kind of, and, I kind of want yeah, to hear from both sides a so little bit. An example of something they would recognize fairly early is the placing of an altar in a sacred space like a church. They would recognize that depending on how far back we went. So you said 5th century. By the 5th century, the text of the Christian Bible is mostly fixed. So they would recognize the books in a Bible. But they might be surprised to find out that there weren't Bibles and there weren't pews in a church. Pews are, I know we weren't supposed to go to that yet, but pews didn't come around until the 16th century. There wasn't a place to sit down. Oh, interesting. Um, They might actually be delighted to see that just as in the modern day, people can rent out a church to have a dinner or vote. Churches were also public spaces. Um, They would probably be surprised, depending on when they went or where they were, to find out that the rituals were different, that the beliefs were different. I think, um, for instance, clerical celibacy, the idea that priests couldn't get married, took a while to catch on. And then, of course, not every Christian community kept it. So that would be something. Um, Things like that, I think, would be mostly continuity, though, would be around some of the rituals. So, for instance... um, the sacred meal that comes to be known as the Eucharist hasn't really changed much in how it's consecrated or um, the language of the liturgy of the mass in Latin was pretty well fixed by about the fifth century. And there were regional variations, but it didn't change that much. What would we completely not recognize? I really think that the most shocking part to most people would probably be the lack of pews and the idea that you weren't supposed to sit down in church but also um the ways that people acted i've i would like to go fact check this but there are numerous accounts of people bringing their dogs to church that would be that would be very enjoyable for me i don't get the sense that that's commonly accepted in modern america so you put out a book in 2016 called Marrying Jesus in Medieval and Early Modern Northern Europe. And I'm wondering if you can explain for the listeners what marrying Jesus means and what a bride of Christ is. You asked me such a hard question. I think I'll give you a careful answer. Sure. Um, First, I would say that the book tries to challenge the idea that there's just one answer and one historical moment that's always true. Um, In that project, I was trying to look at the ways that individuals understood their relationship with Jesus as a spouse. And the idea of marrying Jesus could include things like 
using a phrase, Jesus is my spouse, but also rituals of consecration, um, monastic vows, which to this day, some Christians understand the Bride of Christ to only be a consecrated Roman Catholic nun. And that is a ceremony that is modeled in a lot of ways on um, Roman wedding process. The other thing that I would say about that is that it can also have other meanings, including um, apocalyptic meanings, readings on the book of Revelation. It can be understood as the church is the bride of Christ, thus referring to the community of Christianity, all wed to Jesus. Um, It can refer to Mary, the mother of Jesus. There are a number of different ways that it's used. Because I have to say, it's something that I've never even thought about. So when I'm reading your book, I am coming across things that I have never even considered. Like, I've never thought about um, the idea of having a marriage to Jesus, you know? Is this something that, that surprises a lot of, like, some of your students who grew up in Christian backgrounds whenever you bring up this concept? Is this like a, uh, a relatively foreign thing to them? It's interesting you ask it that way. I don't bring it up to my students. I tend not to teach things that I write on. Um, But I, as a student, first encountered this in college and had never heard of such a thing. And I thought it was very peculiar and I was curious and I didn't come back to pursue it again for a while. I um, am surprised every time one of my students brings it up because they do. And they'll, for instance, talk about their own churches where the young women in a community, particularly the teenage girls, will be told, save yourself, save yourself for Jesus, for instance, or um, be told, or tell me other stories that use that language. And I'm always surprised because for me, and I think this is an example of my learning from my students, for me, this project started as a very historical project. And over the years I was working on it, people kept coming to me with modern stories of people they know, of friends and family, of things they'd heard, of things that happened in their own communities that made me realize this wasn't just a historical abstract thing, but that this is still very much a part of at least some kinds of Christianity in America. Are there any particular denominations that you know of where it's kind of like referred to? Well, the contemporary Roman Catholic Church uses it in both the description of vowed women religious, so shorthand nuns, and in their language of their understanding of the relationship between the church and God. Um, Number of Protestant denominations use it, both informally and formally. It's also used a lot in apocalyptic, non-denominational Protestant movements. Um, I don't think I could give you at this moment, a complete comprehensive listing of who does and doesn't use it and how, but it's certainly part of conventional contemporary American Christianity. Interesting. So the marriage to Jesus was enacted in medieval times through sacraments like baptism and the Eucharist. Um, Do those interpretations hold true to this day, like with baptism and the Eucharist? That is a fascinating question. I am going to say in a careful scholarly way, I haven't looked into that fully. Sure. My sense is from talking with people who spend more time thinking about the present day than I do, that the readings aren't as explicit anymore, Mm -hmm. but that many of the same textual passages are still used and that if people ask about it, they're told, yes, that's what this means. But I'm not 100% sure because I haven't personally studied it. And I'm going to be really careful here. Yeah. 
Yeah. Nice. Uh, so you mentioned in the book that some of the cases in the book might be disturbing to modern readers. And I latched on to that detail so much when I read it. So how so? Can you give me like one example? Here's one example that I know was disturbing to modern readers because several told me. Um, there's a, a confessor who shows up in, I think, a chapter you haven't read, which is fine, because who has time to read that book? It's a big book. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm working yeah, on it. I'm yeah, working on it. Yeah, you cannot miss much. So there's a, a passage in a story written by a nun about her community's confessor where they talk about how he's becoming a bride of Christ while he's performing Mass. And in this passage, the infant Christ child calls him to join him in the crib, and they suckle from one another's breasts, and then they consummate their marriage with the Virgin Mary looking on. And this is both a pretty explicitly sexual scene between a grown man and an infant boy that is done in public, and it's happening during Mass on the altar. This is a passage that numerous readers have told me they found a little bit disturbing. But it's in the text. You can't, I mean, somebody wrote it down. It doesn't necessarily mean that everybody in the era it was written in thought this was not disturbing, but it certainly was in the text. Do you know which chapter that's in off the top of your head? I don't remember. We may have to look it up. Okay, so how is Jesus? How is marriage to Jesus considered pop culture in its day? I would say it's still pop culture. Um, I don't know if it's still around. It used to be an online website where you could buy T-shirts and mugs and things like Etsy or Cafe Press, but Christian explicitly, and a lot of them were Jesus is my husband, Jesus is my boyfriend, wide variety of these things. Um, but in the period I was working on, my big argument, and to understand why I wanted to make this argument, the scholarly consensus to that point had been that excuse me, marriage to Jesus was something exclusively for women who were extremely religious, who either were virgins or wanted to be virgins, and usually women who had dedicated themselves to a life of chastity. And anybody who didn't fit that model was an outlier. And a large part of my work was looking at how actually, if you look at the evidence, it wasn't just a few saintly figures. It was actually in books that people could pick up. It was in local art. It was in sermons. People talked about it. It was in music. And that's what I meant when I was talking about it being part of popular culture, that it was widely known that people did it who were not part of a religious order or dedicating every hour of their day to prayer. Gotcha. So whenever we think about the this concept of brides of Christ, um, especially in the book, in the ears in the book that you're talking about, um, when a soul is wed to Jesus, does that mean of all genders, like in the time period? The simple answer is yes. There is no limitation. And um, it's also worth noting that there are passages from the Middle Ages that describe Jesus as female as a sister, as a mother, as a she. But certainly, there's some argument about this. The soul is more often gendered female, and the body is more often gendered male. So even a male author might talk about that person's soul using feminine pronouns. But certainly, um, in the period I was working on, there are numerous accounts of people who, and I'm I'm really cautious about using gendered terms about a historical period that had a different concept of gender. gender, but people who we typically identify as male who did have a marriage to Jesus, and that absolutely is documented. I find that to be an astoundingly beautiful thought, 
of like the male body, but how that can have like a like the soul could be gendered female. Mm-hmm. I, I find that to be really fascinating. It is really fascinating. I would agree with you. I think the other part of this, though, that is important to think about is that they had different ideas of gender and gender was more fluid and their model for gender was more fluid. And it was absolutely textually, at least, I mean, you know, the sources we have, it was not unheard of for somebody depicted in a text to be male at times and female at other times. I bought a book the other day called um, Same Sex Unions, and it came out with a religious studies scholar, um, and it's John Boswell. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, yeah, John Boswell. Um, He's actually, he's a deceased historian at Yale. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I'm thinking a lot about what I read in the blurb of that book Mm -hmm. whenever I'm hearing some of the things that you say. So, as a couple of notes, John Boswell's work has been enormously influential. I'm looking around at my shelves because there's a copy of it somewhere in this room, but I won't. Oh, it's up the top shelf. I see it. Same-sex unions. There it is. Cool. There. Um, He did a lot of work documenting sources that had not been part of the scholarly knowledge base that depict that just seemed to describe marital union and same-sex intimacy in Christianity. And a lot of his sources were Greek, and a large number of them seem to be describing marriage rituals between two men, often or priests or monks. And the data he works with is actually quite convincing, but there's been a lot of pushback, as you might imagine. Um, A number of scholars since have challenged his thesis or challenged his sources or said that the, um, I don't know what's flying over us, but there's something flying over us. Or proposed that he was misinterpreting rituals that were more about friendship than sexual intimacy. And it's so influential that scholars talk about the Boswell thesis. It's a great book. Awesome. The appendices are awesome. He has a number of translated rituals right there for you if you want to have a look and see what he proposes it's going to be marriage looked like. It's going to be in my mailbox tomorrow. I'm really excited now. Awesome. Yeah, it's a good read. So... The reason I keep the reason I'm like harping on this like gender thing is because modern Christianity has so many complicated views when it comes to gender and it's so highly critiqued and discussed. So oftentimes Christianity is critiqued as being unwelcoming or rigid when it comes to like same sex relationships. Yet males who experience a marriage to like a male savior, Jesus, during the medieval and early modern times makes like gendered ideas in modern conservative Christianity is sort of messy for me, you know? And so you go on to say in the book that same-sex desire for Jesus was not a problem, however problematic it may be for contemporary Western readers. Can you elaborate on this a little bit for me? Just kind of say whatever comes to your mind. Thanks for reading that passage. I think I wrote it better than I could talk about it right now. What I would say on that is that in our contemporary moment, let's back up and think about some of the differences between the ways that people thought about sexual desire and sexuality then and now. I would argue, and I did argue in the book, that in that period, and there's a lot of historical evidence to back this up, sexual encounters were not identity forming, that sex was something that happened on a spectrum from sin to salvation. So for instance, scholars who've looked at the history of sexuality will point out that In the Middle Ages, the sin of sodomy was handled very differently in different moments, but somebody was a person 
they weren't a sodomite, right? And so the question of male desire for union with Jesus wasn't really a problem because it wasn't about a sexual sin. It was about a form of salvation. Also worth noting, they didn't have a two-sex model, right? Um, In our contemporary moment, we have this idea built on our understanding of how chromosomes work and sexual identity and sexual desire that, first of all, a young man or an old man or anybody who identifies as male who feels some sort of sexual desire towards another male has an identity associated with that. And that identity is about a sex act and about a desire to have a sexual experience. Uh, Maybe I'm generalizing too much, but it's a real difference. The idea of sexual experiences on a spectrum from sin to salvation still frames Christian conversation. But I would suggest that the idea that gender is a fixed binary is relatively new and that that changes the way that people then thought about sexual desire and the way that they think about it now. And if I would add one thing, it would be that in our contemporary moment, we consider that Jesus has to be male and that it's problematic when Jesus is portrayed as anything else. But we also consider that when somebody who identifies as male feels some sort of desire for Jesus in a male body, that's sexualized in a way that overlaps with our ideas about sexual identity. And I would suggest that's not the case in an earlier period where that's not the language people used at all. Yeah, imagery of Jesus is something that's really interesting to watch young people take in when you put up an image of the Jesus who, uh, for example, there was a forensic anthropology project a few years ago at the University of Manchester, I think, where they put together, they dug up skeletons and skulls of first century Palestinian Semitic men and did a reconstruction of what Jesus most likely looked like being around five foot one, being around 110 pounds or something like that. Um, And very much not a uh, Venice Beach, Southern California surfer. Um, And I think that it really, just watching their faces, see what happens whenever they see images like that that don't correspond with the version that they've been told their whole Mm -hmm. lives. One of my favorite assignments is to have students go into an image database and find a depiction of Jesus that was made by somebody who is not a Western artist changes their experiences absolutely and this speaks to this idea that our contemporary jesus is either a very effeminate but white figure or a very muscular but male figure and that is not necessarily the way that everybody always thought about it so as a professor in the humanities you're living in an interesting time for being a humanities professor and there are young generations of Americans coming up who, you know, may be looking to study things like this. Um, So what message do you have for young Americans who might wish to study the humanities, but worry about like their marketability in the professional world and things like that? Like why, what does the, what do the humanities do for us that they need? There are so many ways I could answer that question. I'll I'll give you two versions. The first is it's important to use your time as a student to explore anything that captures your interest. When you are fixed down as an adult with obligations of work, it isn't always possible to pursue your curiosity. And so take advantage of this time as a student and really learn as much as you can and see what you are passionate about. There are so many things that 
you might not even know existed. This is a chance to explore. But in terms of finding a way to make a living and feed yourself, I think about that a lot. I think about it in two ways. When I was a college student, making my choices, one thing I was worried about was what am I going to do afterwards? And I was at a university where they had job fairs and people would come in and try and recruit. And I always remembered the investment bankers would come in and they wanted humanities scholars. They didn't want the econ majors, they wanted the humanities scholars because they wanted people who were culturally literate, who were good writers and thinkers, who could do the hard work of thinking and innovating. And they could teach them how to do fiscal policy. And they also needed people who were good at interpersonal interactions. Some of my classmates went on to work for the CIA and the FBI. Some of my classmates went on to become lawyers. Um, so I think about that and how 20 odd years ago, businesses were actually intentionally recruiting humanities majors. And there's a lot of public opinion writing right now from some of the leading tech companies and some of the leading financial companies saying, we want the humanities, we need these skills. Here's an anecdote, true story, a couple years ago, <laughs> I was at a conference in the lovely city of Chicago with some professors. And, you know, professors don't have a huge amount of money, but we were going out for a nice dinner. It was a really lovely restaurant, upscale, very nice. And we were ordering on the cheap end of the menu, but it was a place that had a communal table. So next to us were three guys who just closed a business deal. And they were ordering at the high end of the menu. And they kept wanting to share their food and hoping to share ours. I think they were disappointed with what we had. Um, but we got to talking in the way that people do. And... One of them had gone to the same undergraduate institution as one of the people at our party and started complaining about how the quality of students had been declining. He would go back and recruit, and the quality of students, they couldn't write anymore. They couldn't think for themselves. They needed to be walked through everything. They could only memorize. He was really disappointed by this, and so we started talking about it. Oh, no, we're only recruiting students from the business school. You're right. And then he realized his boss was, I won't say what major, because who knows who listens to this? I don't want to ruin this person's life. But <laughs> let's say somebody with a degree in the humanities was running the company. And we started talking about it. And the end result was, I don't know if they did it or not, they were going to talk with the business school about making sure their students took more humanities courses. Because they had noticed this change in the quality of the people they were recruiting. That they didn't have those critical thinking skills. That they couldn't do their own research. That they weren't self-directed. And so I would propose that anybody who wants to pursue the humanities still should. It's a good idea to do a double major. Make sure that you have something else. When I was in college, I thought very hard about getting a teaching certificate. I didn't end up doing it because I decided I wanted to go to graduate school. But I think that's a good plan, too. But people I know who graduate with degrees in the humanities, every single one is doing something fulfilling. And that versatility that comes from being a well-rounded human who can read and think and maybe knows a couple extra languages makes a big difference. And I tell you, when there is an economic shift and a company is looking at who to keep and they have to cut a position, knowing two extra languages makes a big difference. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. I have a former student who's studying religious studies and French at The Ohio State University right now. And... She is just a delight to talk to, just so thoughtful, and I completely agree with you. So stepping back from the humanities for a second, let's get more specific. This is the last question I have for you, too. Why does studying religion matter to modern people? Why should we care about religion? I'll give you my real answer, 
first. Okay. Study it because it's interesting. It is but very here's my interesting. My other answer. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, as you can imagine. In a moment where I have decided I want to do this with my career, and many people are saying, show us why you're valuable. I grew up in the Middle East. I spent almost the first five years of my life in Beirut during the Lebanese Civil War. It was a time in which, depending on the day, and depending on what had happened, a religiously affiliated militia might close off a street, check people's IDs, and depending on their names, start killing you. If your name looked Christian one day, if your name looked Muslim one day. The war has been over since 1991, more or less. Decades later, these issues still emerge. There are efforts to have religious reconciliation and dialogue at the graduate level, at the undergraduate level. Um, when I think about why religious studies matters, part of it is literacy. It's important to know how to talk to people. It's also fact-checking. It's important to know how to evaluate truth claims from religious communities. But quite seriously, it is a matter of state security, national security, stability. Whenever I see another news story about a religiously motivated hate crime in this country, I become concerned because generally speaking, and not always, but generally speaking, people who make choices to act in those ways do so because it makes sense within their understanding of what that other religious group believes. And the more I learn and think, the more I realize that it's not surprising if you believe the things that, for instance, show up in a Google search about certain elements of, I don't know, pick your religious tradition, Islam, that are heinous and abhorrent, but not necessarily true, that might be the way that you begin to think. This is dangerous. We need to stop it. And I genuinely think that studying religion, more so than other humanities, honestly, is a really important way to help people find the tools they need to learn how to evaluate claims made by others, but also to understand how their own faith perspective fits into a much larger world. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's how I've been thinking about it lately. That was amazing. Professor Robbie Gregory, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. This has been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Striving. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leaving a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.